0: little befuddled by the fact that Miss Becca looks and has the same quirky sense of humor as Miss Lisa on these videos. It's a twin thing. Yeah, if you don't know them, they're, they're, they're twins and they are both that way. So that's, that's what they do. And we're very thankful for that. Hey, uh, let's let's bow together. Prepare our hearts to receive the word today. And I'd like us also to pray. Just pray for our nation, and as the election results have come in. So let's let's pray together, if you would. Lord, we bow before you. We declare, you are our king. It's your kingdom above all others that we belong to, that we hope in. So God, it's as As those people, your people, with our hope firmly in you, that we pray together today for our new president-elect, President Biden. God, we pray for mercy upon him, that the things that he declared last night, that he wants to mark his presidency, a humility before you, and unity, building unity amongst our people in this land. Lord, grant him, make him useful towards those good ends. And Lord, we pray also for President Trump in a day that's got to be disappointing and sorrowful to him. We pray you'd grant him the same humility, the same concern above all others for our nation. Um, And Lord, we pray for peace in the streets and in our cities. We pray that um, calm voices would prevail. Lord, make us those voices. Let us be the peacemakers in our relationships, in our cities that your blessing might fall upon us. And Lord, now let us receive the word that's about the great, the supreme hope above all others, where our hope lies, in the life and the resurrection life of your son. And we pray this in his name, amen. So today we are finishing our study of the gospel of Mark. We are in Mark chapter 16, if you want to flip there on your device or in your Bibles in your lap. Um, But as we do, I want to acknowledge that there is not one but two elephants in the room as we look at this chapter. And one of them is much larger and significant than the other. So we'll tackle the lesser elephant first. Look with me at the first eight verses of Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Okay, this is elephant number one, right? Is this where the gospel of Mark ends at verse 8 or not? Okay, Are verses 9 through 20 part of the Bible or not? Okay, That's the, the first question that's raised here. Uh, there's a larger question that this, this elephant raises for us, and that is, can I have confidence that my English Bible is reliable if this is in dispute? And so let, let's answer that second question first. Um, is my English Bible reliable? Short answer, you bet. Okay, let's, let's unpack that a little bit. Think with me about how our Bible was written. As you know, It wasn't written in English, not even in the king's English, right? So the Old Testament, mostly Hebrew, and the New Testament, mostly Greek. This is why seminary students in your small group often look so very tired. They're studying these ancient languages under Dr. Merkel and Dr. Lasseter and others, and it is wearisome, right? Um, It wasn't written down in a Word doc. Um, it was on perishable parchments and papyrus, which often had a lifespan of maybe 20 to 30 years, uh, at which time it would have to be recopied onto a new parchment by a professional scribe that was hired to do that task. And this resulted, this process resulted in two very important truths. One, we no longer have the original manuscripts to the New Testament. Okay? They are no longer in existence but the second truth that is so so important is that we do have thousands of remarkably reliable copies of the and manuscripts of the new testament nearly 25,000 manuscripts by one count Um, and just to help you put some perspective on that the runner-up as I understand it is something you read in high school Homer's Iliad probably And uh, we have 643 extant copies of the Iliad. So the the New Testament, we have more copies of the New Testament than any other ancient document um, from this time period by far, 400 times more, okay? The Bible is the most reliably documented ancient document in existence in spite of us not having the originals, okay? Plus, as you can imagine, the church was meticulous in storing and copying these manuscripts, manuscripts such that now they're in amazing agreement. Um, estimates by scholars run somewhere in the 98 to 99% accuracy of these manuscripts as we piece them together. That's pretty darn accurate, okay? Except here, right? The end of the Gospel of Mark is said to be the most significant textual question in the entire New Testament this is the big one right but even here okay and I'll let you read the remainder of the passage later today and you'll see what I mean there's no significant textual um, Christian doctrine at stake in these latter verses of the gospel of Mark if if we left them off unless you consider drinking poison and not dying as a major Christian doctrine which we wouldn't consider that. So, now there's a temptation to think that because this small section of Scripture is in dispute, that it throws the whole of Scripture into doubt. I mean, if I'm not sure about this piece, how can I trust anything in the Bible? And, and I want you to know that's really not the way confidence normally works for us. Okay? Think of it like this. Uh, I, drive a, I drive a luxury car. It's a 2007 um, Toyota Prius and it has all the options steering wheel you name it but on the back window it has this really fancy option called a rear window defroster some of you some of you who have low-end cars don't know what I'm talking about the luxury cars and there's little wires that run across the back of the window right you push a button shazam it defogs it defogs the back window now on my Prius um, There's a couple of those wires that don't work, right? So I have half of a rear window defroster on my Prius. Imagine if I walked out one morning and I looked at my Prius and I said, you know, a couple of those wires don't work. If I can't trust that those wires are going to work, how could I trust driving this car at all? And so I just have it towed off and throw it away because a couple of the wires on the defroster. No, that's not how we think about confidence and reliability, is it? We would think about, as would be the case with my car, I would think, this has been a really reliable car. Everything else is pretty much in order. I'm going to drive this car based on the bigger picture of reliability of that vehicle. Okay? So that's the way, in one sense, that we would think about um, the New Testament in like fashion. You needn't and shouldn't distrust your Bibles because of these few verses. You can and should trust fully your English Bibles. What you have on your phone, um, what you have in your lap, is the careful, prayerful result of literally thousands of years of faithful scholars pouring over these ancient manuscripts, weighing pros and cons, carefully reconstructing the final document that you have on your phone, and it's a remarkably faithful and accurate reconstruction of the original. Again, you can and should trust your English Bibles. So I'll post a helpful article um, that addresses these matters more fully, but Let me give a brief answer to that first question, right? Where does Mark's gospel end? At verse 8 or verse 20? And think about it this way with me. The vast majority of those ancient manuscripts do include verses 9 through 20, no doubt. The most, far and away, most of the manuscripts include those. But when scholars try to figure out what was the original, they don't just look at the quantity of manuscript. They'll also consider the quality. And our most ancient and best copies of Mark, though far fewer in number, they do end at verse 8. So it's a little bit of quantity versus quality that's going on. in in the scholar's mind as they work through this. In addition to the manuscripts themselves, they're asking asking questions about how did this ending come about? Um, They're trying to reconstruct what might have caused the different ending. Is it more likely that a scribe added that longer ending or that a scribe cut it off? Um, do Do the vocabulary and style and theology of that portion match the rest of mark's gospel and without going into all the ins and outs of the discussion the broad consensus of scholars every single commentary i read indicates that mark in fact the original ended at verse eight and the latter part was likely added by a well-intentioned scribe so how do we read those verses If, in fact, they were not originally part of our Bibles, verses 9 through 20 I'm talking about. Should we rip that page out of our Bibles and burn them in, you know, declaration of our fidelity to the Scriptures? I don't think so. The best way that I've found to put it is simply this. Read them as history, but not Scripture. See, this longer ending to Mark likely dates back to the early decades of the second century. Very, very ancient um, writing that we have here. We have, what we have is a valuable, beautiful, very ancient window into the teaching of the church historically. And this teaching is made up of what seems to be a compilation of other portions of Scripture, especially the ends of other Gospels. So if you read those verses later today, um, it'll contain the women's report to the 11 disciples. It'll also contain an encounter with two disciples who were walking along a road and spoke to Jesus. Those, some of you will recognize, come from the Gospel of Luke. There'll also be a series of signs that's indicated will accompany the spread of the Gospel. And those reflect the the teaching in the book of Acts. So as a result of us viewing this as history and not Scripture, We would not build a doctrine on anything taught in these added verses unless it was taught elsewhere in Scripture. So, for instance, don't go home and drink poison and see what happens, right? That's that's not the intent of those verses anyway. But that doctrine would need to be substantiated elsewhere before we would teach it. So, that's the first elephant in the room this morning. There's a second elephant. It is way, way bigger, of far greater consequence. It's in verse 6. Look at it with me. The angel said to the women, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Okay. He is risen. He is not here. This is a world-changing world changing Claim this elephant is huge, right? How are you, if this is true, how are you dealing with the claim that Jesus conquered death, like we sang earlier? So, this angel here, he affirms that Jesus was in fact crucified, that he had been buried in this tomb. They weren't at the wrong tomb, that's not an option. And he has been raised from the dead. The significance of this is honestly beyond words. The Apostle Paul takes a stab at it when he writes in his resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the resurrection of Jesus is a game changer in so many ways. Let me just mention two of those ways that Mark deploys this teaching about the resurrection to accomplish. First of all, he tells the story of the resurrection to confirm Jesus' identity as the son of God. As uh, Ben Merkel made so clear for us last last week, um, there's a Canadian pastor, his name is Paul Carter, and he has a helpful perspective on this. I'd like to to cite him for you. He says, uh, Mark is proving to us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He told us that in the first verse of his gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He showed us that in the words and works of Jesus in his earthly life and ministry. He gave us Jesus' own sworn testimony under oath at his trial before the Supreme Court of the Jewish people. He recorded for us the words of the Roman centurion, even though he was not a Christian and not even a Jew and not even up to speed on the things that Jesus had said and done. At the moment of his death on the cross, he said this, truly this man was the Son of God. Paul says, so there you have it. What more do you need? What more evidence do you require? Well, Mark gives us one more thing. He gives us the evidence of the empty tomb. The empty tomb is Mark's last word on the identity of Christ. If you don't believe what I say, Mark says, if you don't believe what the miracles say, if you don't believe what Jesus said, or the centurion said, then for crying out loud, how in the world do you explain the empty tomb? The resurrection is confirmation of Jesus' identity as the only begotten Son of God. Okay. Now the, the second thing Mark uses this resurrection account to accomplish is to confirm Jesus' cross work. Listen again to Pastor Paul Carter. He, he cites Mark 10:45 that says, "For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve." And to give his life as a ransom for many. As a ransom for many. Jesus said that back in chapter 10 that his death on the cross would be a payment of some sort. When they put his body on the cross, when they put his body in the tomb, he was making a payment on our behalf. So when his body was raised to life and he walked out of that tomb and out of death, that was God saying, this payment has been accepted in full. Think of it like this. He says, when you put your debit card in the machine and you wait, your payment is being processed, what message are you waiting for? Payment accepted. Remove card. He said, that's what the empty tomb is saying. Remove card. Arise. Go. Payment is accepted. Jesus died, so we don't have to. He descended to the dead So we don't have to. His death was a ransom for our sin. His resurrection is the guarantee of our eternal life. That's what the empty tomb is saying. Thanks be to God. And that's the big elephant in the room, right? Not what about these 11 verses, but what about the resurrection? What difference will the resurrection of Jesus make in your life? Will you confess him as the son of God and trust In the payment he made to ransom many from their sins, will you by faith be part of the many? Now Mark tells this brief resurrection story through the eyes of three women, which I am extremely, extremely grateful for. You know, throughout history, the church has far too often minimized and even demeaned the place of women disciples in the kingdom. Not Mark, not any of the gospel writers, really. They, they, all four of the gospels, have women as the privileged first witnesses of the resurrection. All four of them. And throughout Mark's passion account of the cross and the resurrection, the women are the faithful disciples, by and large. When the others flee, there they are, faithfully following Jesus. Remember the verses from last week, at the cross, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James, and uh, the younger and of Joseph, and Salome, the same three women in our account. When he was in Galilee, file that away, remember the place of Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem, So when all the men effectively are in hiding, it's the women who are present at the cross and the first to come to the tomb. Here's an interesting thought, right? These three ladies are on their way to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body, and they're concerned about how to get the stone away from the opening of the tomb. Why is that a concern for them? Well, perhaps it's because all the men are still in hiding, right? Sisters, yours is a history and place of honor in the kingdom, equal with your brothers in every way, unique from us to be sure, but equal among us. And in the accounts of the death and resurrection of the Lord, it's the women who set the standard for fidelity and love for Jesus. I hope it's encouraging to you. And look look at the opening verses of our chapter again. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. So this was to be an anointing, not an embalming. This was not an act of preservation, it was an act of adoration. These women are there for one reason, They loved Jesus and wanted to honor him, even in his death. And then Mark's telling takes this surprising twist. This man in white who is inside the empty tomb, an angelic appearance, surely, gives the women an assurance of Jesus' resurrection and then gives them this singular instruction in verse 7. Go, tell his disciples and Peter, That he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. End of the book of Mark. Okay. What a way to end the telling of the life of Christ with the failure of even the most faithful of his disciples. Pastor Lee Eklov reflects on this helpfully. He says, we like our Bible stories to end with a bang. Israel escaping from Egypt through the watery walls of the Red Sea. The walls of Jericho tumbling down. David decking Goliath with a slingshot. You hear a Bible story like that and you're ready to sing a hymn and go home happy. The best ending in the Bible, of course, is the ending we celebrate today, he says, the resurrection of Jesus. Every time we read the story from the Gospels, it gets us. It's great. Well, he says, except for Mark. fact is, Mark wrote sort of the black sheep of Bible story endings. You read the end of Mark and you wonder if he got writer's block just before he finished or if his printer ran out of ink. Here's the ending of the resurrection story as Mark wrote it. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The Bible's other storytellers emphasize the joy. Mark emphasizes fear. He piles on the heart-pounding, breathless words, trembling, bewildered, fled, afraid. What kind of gospel ends with the words because they were afraid? Now, as a result of that, some have said this can't be the ending. And perhaps that's why scribes added those additional verses. They suggest that perhaps the real ending was lost, like a page torn out of the back of a much-read novel. Um, Others hypothesize that Mark could have been arrested during Rome's persecution, maybe even killed before he had a chance to finish. And as a result, people like the scribes have been writing endings to Mark's gospel that make more sense than ending with failure and fear and disobedience. There are actually a number of different added endings in different traditions. So if you're listening to your dwell app, and you listen to the New Revised Standard Version, read you the Bible there, read this passage, Um, they actually have the short ending at verse 8, and then they have inserted an intermediate ending between verses 8 and 9, and then they include the long ending between verses 9 and 20. Um, So there, there are a number of people who've felt compelled to add things here. Some have said that it's really not that bleak of an ending. Uh, The women's fear might have been a good fear. The kind people have when they encounter God close up and personal in the Old Testament. And the trouble with that is this fear seems to fuel their disobedience. The angel tells them, go tell the disciples. They give in to fear, it says, and tell no one. So what is the point of ending your gospel like this? Let me suggest three things that Mark accomplishes with his strange, short ending to his gospel. And that is the ending I believe God intended for us all along to have. First of all, it helps verify that Mark is not making this stuff up. If you're going to make up a legend for people to follow, you probably wouldn't use women as witnesses in the first place because they had no real credibility as such in the first century. And then you sure wouldn't have them cave into fear. That you know, depreciates their witness all the more. You'd have them telling everyone, fully transformed by this encounter with an angel sitting in that empty tomb. So, so this ending doesn't sound like a fairy tale ending. It has the ring of truth to it. The second thing Mark accomplishes with this ending is to bring encouragement to those of us who are fearful followers of Jesus. Jesus trusts his life's work to fearful followers. The 11 who fled in the garden in fear. His closest friend, Peter, who betrayed him three times in fear. And these faithful women who deeply loved him, they all yielded to fear. And yet Jesus had no alternate plan. Instead, The resurrected Jesus has a plan to restore these fearful ones. Look again at verse 7. The angel says, go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told. Now, why Galilee as a rendezvous point with the resurrected Christ? Um, I would say Galilee was where it all started for most of these people with Jesus. Most of the apostles and these women evidently called that place home. It was the place where Jesus first called them. So this is the language of grace and restoration to the way things used to be for them, the way things are supposed to be, when they were following Jesus faithfully. So if you're here this morning and you feel like a failure, as a follower of Jesus, maybe because of a great big failure or maybe because of a steady string of lesser ones, you need to know that Jesus is not in the habit of discarding disciples who give in to fear and fail. There's grace for you. Jesus wants to meet you in your Galilee too. And so as the long ending implies in Mark, and as the other gospels record, these women did regain their balance and their faith Look at what Luke says about these same ladies. Returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest, just like the angel told them to. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. They recovered their faith. So did the apostles, eventually. And some of you have had the chance to speak to a co-worker or a neighbor or a family member about Christ, and you froze up. You caved and gave into fear. Um, Just like the women, you spoke to no one. Um, With Jesus, though, past failures can be future opportunities. And there's grace for you. Jesus still wants to use you to speak of him. You are not on a discard pile because of your fears and failings. The last thing I'll point out come out of this short ending of Mark is that it can be an an invitation for you to write your ending to the gospel of Mark for you to believe. Um, Over the years, as I indicated, a number of people have taken their hand at writing different endings to Mark. I love how one author, his name is Lamar Williamson, put it. He said, when is an ending not an end? When a dead man rises from the tomb. Mark's ending is no end. Only the reader can bring closure We must decide how the story should come out. So what ending to Mark's gospel will you write with your life? How will you embrace the hope of the resurrection of the Son of God? With fear or with faithfulness? Pastor Lee Eklav tells a beautiful story that someone, a couple wrote for their ending to the gospel of Mark. He goes like this. He says, 23 years ago, Laura and Greg called me and wanted to get married And I, honestly, he says, tried to give them the brush off. They weren't Christians, they just wanted a church wedding. And I was pretty gruff. He says, I told her that getting married in a church didn't win them any more favors with God than if they were married under the blue light at Kmart. Now, some of you are younger. Kmart used to be a store. They had a blue light special. Ask some of the old people. They know know what that is. But if they didn't have God in their lives, he says, a church wedding wouldn't do much good. And she said, well, if you won't marry us, Would you at least talk to us some more about this? He said, I was embarrassed by my attitude. And they came to see me. And in that first visit, after we got acquainted, I explained the good news of Jesus Christ. When I told them how our sin has killed us inside and is condemned by the righteous God, they understood. And when I told them that Jesus died to put our sins to death and rose from the dead to give us new life, they understood that. And when I asked if they'd like to put their faith in Jesus Christ... They could hardly wait. They each prayed, confessing their sin and asking Christ to forgive and save them. Laura reflected to Lee later. She said, on that day, she said, I wanted to ask you if I could get up on your desk and dance. She said, when she rode home behind Greg on his motorcycle, she yelled at him, I feel so good. And Greg had to tell her to quit squeezing him so hard she was cutting off his circulation. She said she remembers thinking, I feel like I just took the best shower of my life. Lee writes, there are lots of great endings to Mark's story. That's one. Maybe you have one too. Or maybe today is your day to write one. Let's pray about that if you would. Bow with me. Lord, I pray for those who hear your word now and want to believe that you would be kind to them and grant them faith. To forsake and acknowledge their sins and to cling to your son Jesus as their savior. To rescue them from their sin and to give them a new life with you. Extend that mercy now. And Lord, to those of us who are fearful followers, we failed you. Bring grace to us. There's a good chance we'll be around those people we failed before again. And Lord, we know you want to use us, so fill us with your spirit and give us boldness to speak of the love of God for, the, for our friends and neighbors and coworkers and family. This, Jesus, we do ask in your name and for your sake. Amen.